Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, we've heard it on our news recently. Organized labor has experienced a string of big wins. And according to Gallup, we've not seen this much support for unions among the public for decades. This hour, we discuss what labor's recent gains may mean. We'll hear from a variety of Iowa union leaders. We'll also be joined by labor educator Paul Iverson of the University of Iowa. He'll put these labor successes in historical context. And uh, one of the big questions we'll be looking at throughout the hour, are unions in fact surging back? And if so, why? Well, let's start with Nolan Tab. Nolan is a 12-year member of the UAW Local 281 at John Deere in Davenport. He's also a member of Unite All Workers for Democracy. Nolan, welcome to our program. Hey, thank you. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate the opportunity. Let's start with the present, if we could. Striking UAW automotive workers are back at work. Uh, This after tentative agreements were reached with the three Detroit automakers, uh, local union groups, still must ratify deals with Ford, with General Motors, and Stellantis. UAW President Sean Fain says this new contract is historic. In his words, a deal that reclaims the gains previously lost over the past 10 years. You're not an auto worker, but how would you characterize the agreement? When you kind of step back and put it in perspective, Sean was sworn in just seven months ago uh, as a part of the Members United slate. And uh, the work that we've that we've done collectively to life that uh, empowered and engaged uh, rank and file membership, and, and kind of bring it to this fever pitch with you know kind of I think breaking the mold also uh, with the stand up strike as has been coined. Um, you know I think there is a lot of skepticism about what exactly could be won back over one bargaining agreement, and uh, I think most people are surprised with the gains that they are able to achieve. Yeah, you said the stand-up strike. Uh, help us understand, those of us who are not in the labor movement, not in a union, what made this strike so successful, in your opinion? Well, I think the the biggest piece of it was was having the, the unity and the solidarity amongst uh, auto workers um, within the UAW, and that they were willing to uh, stand up and walk out at a moment's notice, right? They were ready to show that they were not going to settle for anything less than what they were worth, bringing it back to kind of Uh, Two years ago, in my experience, a lot of that is still very much the same, whether it be looking at it from the the wage disparity or or the stagnant wages and the ever-rising inflation, uh, the the gap between CEO pay and and kind of just, you know, kind of going off the charts. Also, it's worth noting, too, that these auto workers are still, you know, the essential workers uh, that worked during the, the pandemic just after ratifying their agreement in 2019. And all of that is still, you know, just now coming to head. And so I think there's a lot of similarities there. Two years ago, when John Deere ended a five-week strike, John Deere and Co., uh, that was in the fall of 2021. Then UAW members, I prove you were one of those members voting, approved a new six-year contract uh, with John Deere. Over 10,000 Deere workers, uh, not only in Iowa, but also Illinois and Kansas, had rejected two previous contracts. That set off this first strike against Deere, the first one since 1986, Tie that in, if you could, to what we're seeing today. Was that the first momentum? Can you talk about it in terms of momentum, success, begetting success? Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I like to think, and maybe others would agree, that uh, it was kind of the, the jump-off point for what was to be a larger labor movement. And, you know, whether it be because workers working in that pandemic that followed shortly after put into focus what was important in life, right? The working-life balance and uh, uh, living to work or working to live kind of mindset. You know, again, when you, when you can organize the power in, in labor around any given subject or, or topic or issue, whether it be social or work-related, you know, that power does lie in, in, in the workers so long as we can organize together and stand united. Mm-hmm. You're a member of Unite All Workers for Democracy. This is a caucus within the UAW. Uh, tell us, what are the goals of this caucus? What's it about? Yeah, so Unite All Workers for Democracy, or, or UAWD, is a grassroots rank-and-file movement within the UAW that has come together since about 2020 to reform the UAW in light of the government oversight, um, which gave us the choice or the option for a one-member, one-vote referendum. Uh, United Workers for Democracy was was the, the frontliner in getting the word out and to organize around the option of being able to hold our international elected leaders, well now international elected leaders, but our international leaders, holding them accountable, right? It's it's about holding them accountable and essentially taking back the power because, you know, UAWD believes that the rank and file membership is and should be the highest authority in the union. And that's kind of the vision that uh, we collectively we share. And I think that the sentiment that, that people want to embrace in labor all across the country, all across the world. And so finally, what is your answer to the key question this hour on our program? Why are unions seeming to surge back? Why are they enjoying broader support from the public than they have in decades? What's different? Because we've had a number of decades when unions have been relatively weak. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it's one that, you know, you could kind of dive into and, and, and have an ever, ever-changing perspective or, or an answer. But, you know, I'll take a shot at it. I think that, by and large, we had become complacent as workers for, for, for a while. And, you know, not, not uh, whether it be because of apathy, um, you know, being disengaged, uh, you know, whether it be just coming in and clocking in and clocking out and just kind of just having that mindset of, of well, why bother? Nothing's ever going to change. When, when you're presented with an opportunity to to be that change, uh, I think that's what we're seeing now. And you're seeing that that resurgence of that militancy of, of workers that are the community, right? The Detroit area, for example, you, you don't know that your, your little league coach or your or your kid's soccer coach also works at, you know, Stellantis Ford or GM, or your, uh, your brothers and sisters um, at church on Sunday mornings, that kind of thing. We are workers. We are in this together, right? It's a, it's a class solidarity. And that, you know, if, if there's something we don't agree with as, as a, you know, middle class or, or a working class, rather, then it's up to us to, to create that change, organize around it. I mean, you know, social issues, housing authority, housing problems are workers' problems, right? Women's reproductive rights are workers' problems. Rising inflation and cost of living and work-life balance, those are all worker problems. And we are all, we are all of the working class. So we're all starting to realize if we stay together, we can achieve anything. So, Nolan, looking back over what we're seeing over the past decades in terms of success or failure of labor activism, would you say there were mistakes in the past that you'd like to avoid? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we'd be remiss if, if we pretended like there hasn't been mistakes in the past, uh, especially, you know, within our great UAW. Um, I, I think that there was a top-down culture for a while that we're now just trying to kind of 
we're, tra- we're trying to kind of launch a paradigm shift in, in that, right? Whether originally it was company-friendly uh, approach, right, to keep to maintain that good working relationship. Uh, and we see where that's got us, along with, you know, having total power and not having checks and balances at the top of some of the largest labor unions. I, I think that it's kind of a, a perfect storm now of given the ability or the chance to, to create change that maybe we otherwise wouldn't have seen, uh, but then being able to organize and kind of stand on the shoulders of those who have been trying to fight this fight for the last 30 or 40 or 50 years. So in short, as we end here, Nolan, where do you see this heading? Where will this movement be, this resurgence be in two, five, ten years, you think? Yeah, it's really exciting to think about. Uh, you know, I, I think that what we're seeing already with, you know, cross-union solidarity, um, you know, from Teamsters and AskMe, teachers unions across the country, uh, you know, UAW, manufacturing uh, labor unions, we are all starting to kind of reach out together, right? And that was kind of the vision of our new administration within the UAW and Sean Fain um, from the get-go is that, uh, you know, right now we're going to focus on cleaning up our own house. We're going to clean our own house, organize our house, and then we're going to reach out and help other people organize their house, and then we're going to organize together. And when you take that kind of template or that strategy and and you kind of just grow it from, uh, you know, higher levels and, and essentially do the same thing, on, on larger scales. I mean, you know, right now we're organizing and reforming the UAW. Together, maybe we organize and reform capitalism or reach across imaginary borders between workers from other sections of the world, which we've already started to do. Um, and, and really, again, you know, when you take that strategy and you scale up, you, you're going to find the same results. It's just a matter of what you're organizing around. That's a far-reaching vision for you, Nolan Tab. Thank you so much. Nolan is a member of the UAW Local 281 at John Deere in Davenport. Nolan, thank you for your views. Thank you. That conversation recorded yesterday with Nolan uh, Ben Kiefer. It's River to River from IPR News. Uh, we've just heard an account of, of Nolan Tab from John Deere in Davenport, union member there. Paul Iverson joins me now live in the studio. Paul is a labor educator at the University of Iowa Labor Center. Hi, Paul. Hi, Ben. We've asked you here to give us a deep dive in some historical context for what we're witnessing today with these uh, the string of union successes. I think we'll put that off until the next segment. We have a couple minutes before we go to break. I'd like to have you react, first of all, to some of the things that Nolan said there. Uh, what are your thoughts on his narrative of the UAW strike, the connection with the Deer strike two years ago, and his assessment of the upswing in labor successes? I thought Nolan did a very good job of of placing himself in labor history. Uh, labor history is a story of workers struggling together for respect and dignity in the workplace. And there are ebbs and flows over time. Uh, but uh, Nolan focuses on a very important uh, factor in what is happening today. COVID, the COVID pandemic led to a re-reckoning of labor uh, and work relationships in the United States. You had people that were just kicked to the curb, uh, a lot of retail people that, you know, that their employers just got rid of. And then you had employers like Nolan who were essential workers who showed up to work every day, literally risking their lives, produced a great product. Uh, produce great profits for their employers, and it gets to the end of the pandemic, and they're saying, you have to respect the work that we did and the risks that we took to create these huge profits for you. Um, and the deer strike was uh, was uh, uh, one of the first battles, you know, uh, in that um, 
post-COVID uh, era, and the increased militancy is showing workers across the United States and in all industries are saying, we're just not going to go back to the pre-COVID uh, reality. We're going to change the reality going forward. Paul Iverson, we're going to have another conversation with a um, labor uh, union member after this break. Then we'll come back to you for more analysis and more history to put this all into context. The resurgence of labor unions in Iowa and the U.S. Paul Iverson, labor educator at the University of Iowa Labor Center. I'm Ben Kiefer. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about the Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. We're talking about the apparent resurgence in labor unions this hour. Support for organized labor is on the upswing among the public. Strong support across all generations and highest among Gen Z people, those uh, currently in their mid-20s down to teenagers. Well, with a string of big win labor victories, are unions surging back? And uh, what does that mean for the future? Key questions for us. And you should join our conversation, especially if you are currently part of a union. Tell us about your experience with organized labor and where you think this is headed. 1-866-780-9100. 1-866-780-9100. Or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Earlier this week, I had a chance to talk with Tanner Fisher. Tanner is president and business agent with Teamsters Local 90, uh, based in Des Moines, covering 19 Iowa counties. Tanner, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ben. Tanner, I want to have you take us back to this summer and the UPS stories, but just recalling the string of labor victories we've had recently, the UAW, uh, also nurses, ER technicians, pharmacists winning in their labor uh, dispute. We had the prolonged Hollywood writers strike, also the actors strike uh, just ending, and UPS uh, averting a a strike as well. You are with UPS. Take us back to this summer and recount the story of how UPS workers averted a strike and won beneficial concessions. Where do we start that story? So starting this last summer wouldn't really do it justice. Really, it started the summer before, one year out. We started to begin having uh, days of action. Really, it started off with going to shop to shop. At the time, I was a, a, stu- a steward of Local 90. Me and me and a couple other uh, brothers of mine, we were going to the uh, other shops, such as Guthrie Center and Ames. We had signs. We are handing out pamphlets, just kind of getting people ready, you know, with the one-year expiration of the contract, which is also 25 years after the previous strike. So this this planning, I mean, at least on the on the ground level, started one year ago. Mm. And the, the actions kind of escalated as the year went on all the way to the very end with the, the full-blown practice picketing. What were the major issues you wanted to tackle? The forced six-day punch, so forcing people to work six days a week indefinitely uh, became a big issue during, during COVID. When deliveries skyrocketed, people didn't have any quality of life. They were working 
you know, you'd get a Sunday off to do laundry and get ready to go back to work. And that was for years. So that was that was a huge issue. Uh, Two-tiered labor was, uh, was, was a huge issue. Uh, new drivers could expect to make $8 an hour less at top pay than what a, another driver would make who'd been there before the previous contract. So getting rid of that was a huge fight. Ending subcontracting in uh, with with our semi drivers, they were towards the end of the contract. They were subcontracting dozens of loads a day, which is undercutting good teamster jobs with pay and benefits. And then uh, part time wages were just completely substandard. And mm-hmm. it's very difficult work to work inside at UPS as a part timer. You're loading a couple hundred boxes an hour, either in the freezing cold or the uh, the scorching summer heat in the back of a trailer that can be 120 degrees. So having that pay close to minimum wage was not going to work. So they were able to win substantial raises for those part-timers. UPS workers averting that strike, winning the concessions uh, there. How did this, how did management respond initially? And what went into such a a successful approach to management? Well, I guess on the national level, I I don't believe at first they took, they took everyone very serious. Sean O'Brien, the the current president of of the Teamsters International took a pretty strong approach. Normally, our supplements, which are the regional agreements for UPS, uh, they're done months after a national contract. O'Brien flipped the script. O'Brien said, we are we're going to have every single supplement done prior to national negotiations, which really applied a ton of pressure on the company to make a, a good faith effort to get a deal done. Mm-hmm. And prior to starting national negotiations, they had all but one supplement done. And that supplement gave O'Brien the blessing to continue with national negotiations, just also not not extending any sort of deadline and forcing a line in the sand if we will have a contract or we will have or you will strike yourself by August first, really applied a ton of pressure. Yeah, but UAW went on strike. What's the difference there between UPS going getting these concessions without a strike and the United Audio workers having many weeks of strike? What's the difference that you can see? I believe it's the scale that us striking would have affected the U.S. economy. UPS moves 7% of the U.S. GDP uh, on, on, on its trucks. The devastation that a strike could have caused was a pretty strong deterrent and, and really forced those concessions out of the company. Mm-hmm. I wonder what prior labor successes did you look to for inspiration? I'm trying to put this in, in context. In the last few years, of course, we had... John Deere with successes a couple years ago. Did you look to that for inspiration, for instance? Yeah, we uh, we actually worked closely with the UAW out of John Deere when we were preparing to strike here locally. We met up with uh, some of their officials and got some good advice as uh, regarding how they managed it. I mean, it's it's a, it's a lesson in managing people. If 600 workers walk out, you know, you have to make sure everyone's in the right places. People are getting strike checks. There's a logistical problem there that we had to quickly find a way to figure out. And the the UAW did an amazing job out there at John Deere. So we looked directly to them for advice on this. Mm -hmm. The big question we're looking at this hour, one of them is why labor activism is succeeding now in recent years when it hasn't really enjoyed much success in recent decades? What's your answer to that? I think at least in the past couple of years, the pandemic really flipped the script. And uh, when people were able to work from home and people ha- had to continue going to work and their wages weren't keeping up, they really realized that they are essential workers and they should be compensated as such. 
I, I really think that's been part of the big swing and the big big upswing in, in organized labor. Yeah. So, so what are your takeaways from the your success with the other successes uh, that we're talking about this hour? What are the takeaways for the future? Do you think for organized labor? I think organized labor is back, and I think I'm getting leads for organizing drives two or three a week right now. And I just would tell people anyone can organize their workplace. If you feel you need more, work collectively, talk with your coworkers, and, and reach out to a union. Yeah. Why is the popularity of unions now highest among the youngest workers, those in their mid-20s down into their teens? For me, I mean, I'm, I'm a fairly young worker myself. I mean, I'm, I'm 27 years old. For me, it was, an, a, you know, maybe college wasn't the right path for me, but there was a having the opportunity to go make a good living at UPS under a union contract and uh, have great benefits and a retirement, that was very attractive to me. And I feel that it is very attractive to all young workers right now yeah. with uh, rising prices of everything. What do you say to those who are anti-union, uh, have some narratives in their head, some experiences in their head from past decades that, you know, unions do more harm than good to our economy? If unions did more harm than good, bosses wouldn't fight so hard to prevent them. So I, I think unions do way more good than harm to all to all workers. Mm-hmm. As, as a boss, I'm sure I wouldn't like a union, I guess. But as as a worker, they help they help all workers out. Mm-hmm. And if you're a worker with those type of sentiments, I'd love to talk to you and just see where you're coming from. Yeah, where do you think this is headed in a year, two, five years? I think uh, the numbers of organized workers are going to continue to to grow, and uh, I think we're going to be part of the reason why the standard of living for the middle class comes back. Okay. Tanner Fisher, president and business agent with the Teamsters Local 90, based in Des Moines. Tanner, thank you so much. Thank you. A conversation with Tanner recorded earlier this week. Um, an added note, Tanner, uh, the youngest Teamsters president in the country. You heard him say just 27 years old. River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer, focusing on the resurgence of unions this hour. Uh, with me in the studio, Paul Iverson, labor educator at the University of Iowa Labor Center. As we dive in and out of these uh, recorded conversations with Iowa union labor um, members and, and leaders, uh, uh, Paul, you were v- vigorous nodding during that conversation with Tanner. What are your takeaways from what he said? Oh, there's so many, Ben. Um, One, the first has to do with UPS itself. Um, He refers to a previous strike. Uh, That took place in 1997. And that UPS strike was, you know, had this theme, part-time America doesn't work. And what they were fighting over was so much part-time work. And they... Uh, successfully rallied people around the part-time America doesn't work theme and won 10,000 new full-time jobs, forced the company to take 20,000 part-time jobs and combine them into 10,000 full-time jobs. And it just struck me how much the issues uh, haven't changed. Part-time work was still an issue here. So something that you have fought and won in the past doesn't mean that you're not going to have to keep fighting to win it all over again. Um, The issues, you know, that he talked about, the forced six-day long, you know, long work hours, the two-tier pay, uh, the subcontracting, those are all tactics that employers have been um, using more regularly uh, since the 1980s, um, trying to uh, divide the workforce um, and 
and be able to uh, impose conditions that are not favorable to workers. And so workers have always had the power. It's just a matter of the workers being able to stay together. Mm. Um, and and now that's what has happened in these, you know, over and over again in these different uh, situations we're talking about that worker, what what is the big lesson is workers standing together can accomplish a lot. Mm-hmm. Paul, take us back in the minutes we have here to go back. Um, I don't know if we, how many decades we need to go back in labor history, but to, in, our, in our limited time, how far back should we go to understand, better understand the context for what's happening in the present? Where would you start? Well, um, it, I, we're not going to spend a lot of time there, but any um, honest history of labor in the United States has to start with slave rebellions in the 1600s. Mm. Uh, they That was workers getting together to try to improve their working conditions, uh, brutally stopped by their employers. Um, and, and the whole history is of groups of workers trying to get together and for much of the history being brutally stopped by their employers. Um, in the 20th century, uh, we get to the Great Depression and workers got together. Even unemployed workers organized, workers that were working organized, and they all worked together to try to change things mm-hmm. and and put pressure upon the government to, uh, to enact the New Deal. And one of the one of those things was the National Labor Relations Act, which gave employees rights. It doesn't give employers rights. It doesn't give unions rights. It gives employees rights. And among them were the rights to organize, form, join, or collect, or, or, uh, or, or support unions, um, and to bargain collectively. Okay, and so, that, so yeah. um, from there, there was a There was a great increase in organizing, and we went through a period from the end of World War II to the end of the 1970s where there was a broad um, uh, prosperity where workers and and, uh, owners were getting more, and, and as productivity increased, wages and benefits. And this is the period, the decades we look to when we say our middle class was big, expanding, and more affluent than ever, right? That's the case, yeah. And and that is the period in which um, the highest percentage of the workforce was unionized. Workers getting together um, did not destroy businesses. Businesses were making a lot of money. They just assured that workers were getting the respect for the work that they were doing in a very tangible way by the wages and benefits they received. Then we come to a decline in labor unions. In the mid-70s, I was a teenager. I actually remember uh, the news about the unions' decline. I had, was surrounded growing up in Cedar Falls by a bunch of uh, you know, uh, unionized uh, mothers and fathers working at John Deere uh, and at meatpacking plants here in Iowa. And what happened beginning in the mid-70s to lead to the union decline? I think what I'll start with, because there were things going on sort of behind the scenes in the mid-70s with the business roundtable being put together and and, uh, and corporations deciding to actively uh, seek to change uh, uh, the way things were going. 
but the big thing for labor is in 1981 was the the PATCO strike, the air traffic controllers. Under Ronald Reagan. Under Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan reacted by firing all the air traffic controllers. And that uh, signaled to business that, oh, okay, because to that point, uh, since the since the end of World War II, there had been something of a detente uh, between there were there were struggles between uh, labor and employers, but in the context that employers understood the that uh, unions played their role, good faith negotiations, good it's... faith negotiations, and um, when Reagan just fired all the air traffic controllers, it it seems to have lit a fire under uh, corporate interest to say, hey, it's okay to attack unions now. Let's try to not just negotiate uh, uh, with the – do tough negotiations with the, with unions, but destroy them entirely. Mm-hmm. And so you've seen uh, a decrease in unionization um, because of – incessant attacks on unions and different tactics that employers have developed to even keep themselves from having employees. And with the the, 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 the union, lack of union success beginning in the 80s and, and so forth, we have a narrative here, uh, polling among Americans, did, didn't think so highly of unions and the role that they played in our society. How, how did that emerge? Um, that's a, you know, it's a lot of... Um, Let's say corporate interests are very well organized, which, which is ironic when you're talking about organized labor uh, um, as the as the counter to that. But they have really good marketing staffs, and they're and and these incessant. They one of the things that they did to change things was to create think tanks like the Heritage Foundation um, and the Cato Foundation that would put out research. Um, and I put research in air quotes, um, that was uh, pro-corporate power, pro-free trade, um, and those and, – and, and well advertised their reports that were uniformly uh, anti-union uh, negative effects of – the supposed negative effects of being in a union – um, and that sort of incessant drip, 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 um, I think, is one reason that uh, that the uh, popularity of unions waned for a while. Okay, putting it into context, uh, Paul Iverson with us, labor educator at the University of Iowa Labor Center. So important to understand the context as we discuss the upswing in union, labor union success. We'll be back in just a moment. Uh, We'll hear from another union labor I talked to uh, actually earlier today, a student, um, president of a graduate student worker union in just a moment. Then back to Paul with some concluding remarks. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. Back with more River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. This hour, exploring the resurgence of organized labor 
in uh, our country, in our state, after unions have experienced a string of big wins and public support for unions is up, up to levels not seen in decades. University of Iowa labor educator Paul Iverson is with us. He'll be back with us live in just a moment to finish up the hour. But first, a conversation I had earlier today with Hannah Zadeh. Hannah is a 24-year-old graduate student in sociology at the University of Iowa, also president of the local graduate student worker union, COGS UE Local 896. Hannah, welcome to our program. Welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me. Help us understand the current issues for graduate workers uh, uh, that you're trying to change. Yeah, so there are many of them. I think the first one that we usually go to is really low pay. And we previously were one of the universities with the highest pay for graduate workers because we were one of the first universities to have a unionized uh, graduate worker labor force. We unionized back in 1996. But since then, when we've seen very regressive Iowa labor law come to pass, especially in 2017, we've seen our wages steadily decline. When you say really low pay, what does that mean? Give us a sense of how low the pay is in your estimate. Yeah, so the base salary for this year is about, it's a little under $21,000 for graduate teaching assistants and research assistants who are on a nine-month appointment. That's pretty close to the poverty line for Iowa. It's certainly far below the poverty line for uh, anyone taking care of a dependent. So it's it's egregiously low. We, t- we talk to graduate workers, graduate worker organizers. We all are struggling to live on these wages. It's a pretty universal issue among graduate workers. Mm-hmm. Um, does that mean a certain number of hours or does that is also, that also part of a grievance here? Yeah, so most graduate worker teaching assistants and research assistants are on what we call 50% appointments. And so technically what that means is that you're supposed to be working around 20 hours a week. And the reason that, you know, you're not working a full-time appointment, right, 40 hours a week is because you're also a student. And so you have a lot of obligations as a student. That's kind of the point of being a graduate student worker is being able to survive and be compensated for the work that you're doing, but then also have time to be a student as well. Mm, Okay. And um, uh, so what other concerns, issues are there uh, that you have on your plate as president of the local graduate student worker union? Yeah. So there are, like I said, a lot of them, a lot of the work that we do day to day is graduate workers who reach out to us who are in really bad or precarious situations uh, in their workplace or their supervisors. We're able to help them in a lot of cases file a formal grievance, uh, especially when it's a violation of our contract or university policy. Another big issue that we have an active campaign around right now is ending uh, student fees. So right now, graduate workers have to pay to work. Every semester, we have to pay fees for the buildings that we're in, for the computers that we use. And, Mm. you know, we sort of reject that as a premise. It's like cashiers don't have to come to work with their cash registers, uh, and we should not have to be paying for the equipment that we use as workers. Um, So we have an active campaign right now to end all of those fees. Mm -hmm. One step back to what you said, you know, some graduate students coming to you with situations, issues that are, you said, bad or precarious. Can you give us an example or two? 
Yeah. So one, I guess, artifact of the way that we do, the way that graduate school is currently organized is that a lot of times your fate as a graduate student is heavily contingent on whether you happen to have a good relationship with your advisor or your supervisor. So if you are unlucky and you get an advisor or supervisor who does not match your needs or who is straight up uh, abusive or who is harassing you, a lot of graduate students feel scared to speak out and scared to try and change those conditions. So every graduate worker has the right to a COGS representative at every meeting. And one of the really valuable things about that is a lot of times people just don't know what their rights are and what, what's, what's actually in our contract and what's in university policy. Mm-hmm. I wonder what do professors and others higher up in the chain at the University of Iowa in this case, case explain about, uh, um, say, to the issues that you've just raised with us? Sure. I mean, so what I can say is that uh, not just for our university, but for just American universities in general, um, they rely really heavily upon being able to have a very low paid workforce doing a majority of the research work, a majority of the teaching work. And, you know, an alternative model to the one that we have now where they hired as many full-time teachers as there are teaching assistants would mean that they would have to pay those workers higher wages. They would have to give them more expansive fringe benefits. And so certainly I think that administrators at our university and a lot of universities are really banking on suppressing the power of our union so that they can continue to pay us low wages. Mm -hmm. Earlier in the hour, Hannah, I spoke with a Teamsters Union member um, in Des Moines, uh, also with a UAW uh, union member. Uh, And I wonder, in your case, what kind of leverage do you have as graduate student workers to achieve the goals that you set? Yeah, so at COGS, our uh, slogan is that the university works because we do. Like I said, teaching assistants do a lion's share of the teaching at the at this university. If you've been an undergraduate or if you know someone who's an undergraduate at the university, they, I can almost guarantee you, have spent a majority of their time in the classroom with a graduate student worker, a teaching assistant. And graduate student workers do a lion's share of the research work at this university uh, as research assistants. So without our labor, this university would literally cease to be able to operate. As graduate student workers, what leverage do you have? I mean, uh, is striking a possibility? Yeah, so striking is a little bit complicated because in Iowa, public sector workers, for public sector workers, it's technically illegal to strike. So we have to be really careful about how we pursue strategies that involve withholding labor. That certainly doesn't mean that we can't be creative with how we leverage our power as workers, because as I said, at the end of the day, like this university does run because we do. As we end this conversation, Hannah, uh, tell us, um, in your view, what's the outlook for your union and the issues that you've raised? Yeah, I feel really optimistic. I think that graduate student workers uh, have a lot of energy around these issues right now. They know that they deserve better and that, you know, seeing uh, the many successes of other graduate student unions across the United States right now, I think, is inspiring a lot of graduate student workers to 
uh, not be satisfied with their working conditions and uh, organize. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you very much. Hannah Zadeh is a 24-year-old graduate student in sociology at the University of Iowa, president of the local graduate student worker union, COGS UE Local 896. Hannah, thanks for coming in. Thank you so much. That conversation with Hannah I recorded uh, had recorded earlier today, back live for the final part of our program with Paul Iverson, labor educator at the University of Iowa Labor Center. Here, another view, another perspective from another union member, uh, the student worker union here. Paul, what do you have to say to, to her words, her view, her perspective? Yeah, Hannah gives us a, a view of a different world, uh, the world of the public sector worker in Iowa. And uh, the Iowa legislature has attacked uh, public sector workers. Um, and she re- refers to a law in 2017, which changed the public sector labor law so that there was only one uh, mandatory subject of bargaining, which is starting wages. Um, and took away uh, a lot of of the rights that uh, public sector workers had. But as Hannah points out, they didn't take away the basic right to engage in concerted activity. And so still unions in the public sector um, are still vibrant, still active. They just have to, uh, you know, they, they don't get to bargain over the same things. So they have to put pressure on the employer in other ways. And as she says, um, so much of what the university does is done by graduate students, and uh, they need to recognize that and respect the employees that are uh, that are allowing them to to uh, uh, provide the education they do. Mm-hmm. Before we end this hour, a few other things to to ask you about, Paul. Talk about political affiliation of, of labor unions over decades into the present, whether that be Iowa or or not. I understand, you know, Iowa uh, under Robert Ray was, um, uh, we had collective bargaining uh, legal under Robert Ray in the, what, early 70s, mid-70s, didn't we? So how does political affiliation match up with, um, you know, uh, supportive unions or or not? Uh, unions in general support the candidates that support workers. You know, so they're they're looking at what's best for the workers. And so, um, unfortunately, in the recent past, uh, that has meant that you know, for for the most part, uh, Republicans have not supported worker issues, although they did, as you say, in the past. Um, and and uh, so, but but unions like to maintain their independence and say. We're not beholden to any party. We want candidates that are going to support workers, and they're willing to endorse people in in any party or a, or a or a third party if they're going to uh, advance worker interests. Right, um, and that's changed a little bit because for, for for years it was thought that the Democratic Party had a lock on the union vote. Has that changed? To what extent has that changed? The um. It's because, uh, you know, that the Democrats are the only party right now that supports workers. So that has been something that it seems like they're locked up. But um, that doesn't mean that uniformly uh, uh, everyone does and, and that all of the issues um, – that workers are necessarily supportive of. So I, I guess what I would say is um, you – Unions want to continue to want to advance politically, 
uh, worker interests and not get into the devi- the divisive things, uh, you know, any of the social issues or anything like that. We're interested in worker issues. And if you support workers, if you help us to uh, have workplaces that have respect and dignity, that allow work-life balance, that allow us to um, support ourselves and our families, then we're, then we're going to support you. Let's talk about the other side of the equation. This hour focused on organized labor, but how would you characterize how management uh, companies have been operating in this new moment on uh, with a, what we're describing as surging union power? Are they negotiating in a different way? Are they developing new measures to counter successful tactics used by organized labor? Uh, so far, uh, and and. I haven't done research in this issue, but it, from talking to labor leaders, um, that there there are some employers that are stuck back in the '80s and '90s and trying to use the heavy-handed tactics that worked before, um, and they end up having to change their viewpoint because. Um, Workers just aren't going to put up with what they put up with before. And so in organized and unorganized workplaces, employers are finding that they have to show respect for their workers or they're not going to have workers. And so uh, workers have collectively been affecting employers even in areas where there are no unions, where, you know, where you see signs at a fast food place, we all quit, sorry, we're closed. You know, if but, you, but that depends on a workforce shortage, which we have. If that ends, then the picture's different? Well, there really isn't a workforce shortage. Um, there is a shortage of good jobs, of jobs that are family-supporting, that provide the respect and dignity that workers want. Um, if there is a shift to where there are better wages, better working hours, uh, you know, better conditions, uh, you'll find that the workforce will increase again, that there are people that, you know, why go to work uh, when I can going to be working two or three jobs and still not be able to feed myself and my family. Um, and so as working conditions change, um, part of the sort of labor shortage is uh, – a mass strike, if you will, where people are just refusing to work uh, for conditions that uh, are too onerous. Yeah, right. But some economists would disagree with your assessment, I would imagine, or not. I don't, yeah. I mean, people, people, I suppose people can disagree. All right. Uh, in the final minute or so here, Paul, what's your outlook? We heard outlook from the union members, um, three of them earlier this hour. What's your outlook for organized labor in this country? Will uh, unions continue with their string of successes, uh, continue to enjoy increased support among the general public? Are we in a new era, the beginning of a new era? I believe we are, and I hope we are. Um, Workers banding together have a lot of power. And in response to that, there are always ways of employers dividing workers. As long as the workers can stay together as workers and don't allow themselves to be divided, then uh, this resurgence can go on and on and on and bring us back to an, a, a broad-based prosperity and not a few having so much they can blast themselves off into space while most people are just scraping to get by. Um, and so... Uh, I think that workers and, and 
and the younger workers um, seeing this and, and the resurgence of popularity among younger workers gives me the confidence that we're f- reaching a generation where um, they're, they've ki- they're not necessarily immune, but they don't take the threats of employers as seriously and they're willing to stand up for what they want. Yeah. And we're seeing, according to polls, uh, the biggest support for unions among those um, uh, Gen Zers, the people in their 20s, the workers in their 20s and in their teens. So we'll keep an eye on this. And thank you very much, Paul Iverson, labor educator at the University of Iowa Labor Center, uh, for giving us historical context for what we're hearing uh, this hour from union members uh, in different uh, sectors across Iowa. Thanks for coming in, Paul. We appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. Tomorrow, it's a News Buzz edition of our program. Voters in Pella said no to giving city officials more power to control books uh, available at the local public library. We'll uh, I'll talk with the president of the Iowa Library Association about that tomorrow. Today's program produced by Caitlin Troutman with help from Samantha McIntosh. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.